This morning, we're going to uh, pick up where we left off last week with Psalm 78. Someone came up to me last week after the service and said, well, it took you 30 minutes to get through the first eight verses, but there are 72 verses. And I don't see them here this week, so that tells you something. Uh, Don't worry, we're going to get through the entire psalm today, and I'm not going to look at every single, we're going to read every single verse, but I'm not going to talk about every single verse. We're going to take it in big chunks. Richard and Karen are going to help me read it. So our scripture reading is going to be sprinkled throughout the sermon this morning. So uh, let's uh, pray and then we'll dive in. Father, thank you again for uh, this morning, for this opportunity for your people to gather together in your name and under your word. Um, would you help us as we soak in Psalm 78 a little bit together this morning, um, come Holy Spirit and light our hearts aflame with it, convict us where we need to be convicted of our sin, but at the same time, convince us where we need to be convinced that you love us and that Jesus has done something uh, to resurrect sinners and make them saints. Um, We long to love you more. Would you create that in us this morning, even as we look at Psalm 78 together? In Christ's name we pray. Amen. In his newest book uh, called J-Curve, Paul Miller tells a story about his youngest daughter, Emily, when she was in 11th grade and how she played field hockey. Uh, She and a friend at some point during the season, were both benched by the coach. Sat them out. They could no longer play. The word on the team was that the coach liked to play favorites. This happens occasionally. And neither Emily nor her father, Paul, were happy about this at all. Paul asked her if she wanted him to go talk to the coach, but she said, no, I'll do it, Dad. And, And he was grateful for her maturity. But around this time when this had happened, Paul ran into another parent, a mom, um, at the gym at the Christian school where their children were attending, and she was livid about this situation. She said, I can't believe what the coach is doing to Emily and her friend. And Paul said that his response was, I'm actually thankful that Emily has this low-level suffering on my watch. I'm actually thankful that Emily has this low-level suffering on my watch. Then he said this, Life is much more like sitting on the bench than starring in a game. Paul said that the shock on this mom's face was as if she had just met an alien from some other planet. Um, While their children played field hockey at the same Christian school... In that moment, this mom and Paul were living in separate stories. Paul had spent the last 15 years, he said, experiencing multi-layered suffering that had driven him deeper and deeper into his dependence on Jesus. And for that reason, when his daughter Emily encountered suffering, Paul was disappointed, of course, but he was not devastated. He was even thankful 
for this opportunity for Emily to be drawn into Jesus. His thankfulness for his daughter's suffering startled this mom. It seemed strange to her. But Paul and his wife Jill uh, had seen Emily slipping into a community that's shaped by this story. This is how Paul describes the story, the story that was shaping the community, even the Christian community that Emily lived in. Sports is everything. If your child is treated unfairly by a coach, go to war. Demand justice. Don't let people push you around. Paul said that that false narrative was embedded in a larger narrative in our culture that was seducing Emily to believe that looks, success, and money were all she needed. And they knew that that toxic story, that toxic narrative, would not deliver life to her. They had a larger vision for her. And that vision was that the normal Christian life reenacts, retells, portrays again and again the dying and the rising of Jesus. Paul had been praying for his daughter that she would not love the world or the things of the world, as 1 John says. So, he saw her benchwarming as God's gift to make her more like Christ. I think he is an alien from another planet. This is what Paul said. Emily knew she was justified by faith, that she was forgiven by Jesus, but that knowledge sat on the surface of her life. I, Paul, knew that sharing in Christ's dying and rising in her own suffering offered Emily the hope of making her life in Christ a present reality, something more than just floating on the surface. He said she, she wouldn't just believe in Jesus, she would become like him. She would participate in his life, in his dying, in his rising. As we started Psalm 78 last week, we talked about how it's clear that God is after parents as much as he is the next generation. Um, And I quoted Kevin Huggins who said that parenting is more about what God needs to do in the hearts of parents and other adults than it is about what we think needs to be done in the heart of our kids. And Paul was showing in this story about his daughter Emily, he was showing that the work God had been doing in his own life about suffering, dying and rising with Jesus, and depending on Jesus in the middle of it, changed the way he thought about what his daughter needed His daughter didn't need to be successful and pretty and liked. His daughter needed to be like Jesus. This is what Asaph is concerned about in Psalm 78. He's concerned that uh, this generation of adults is not passing on to the next generation of their children a true story. And he recognizes there are competing narratives in our lives. And he's urging in this psalm our generation to be sure that we're living in the right story that God is telling so that we may have the opportunity to pass on the true story about the true and living God. Now I want to stop before I go any further. 
and say this clearly. I know, and you know, that yes, though Psalm 78 is clearly saying that we as parents and adults in the church have a responsibility and the privilege and even some influential power to pass that story on to the next generation, they also have to choose to believe that story and to live in it. So I don't want you to hear me saying, from what I said last week, or what I'm going to say this week, that Psalm 78 offers you some sort of formula that if you just do these things, your children will pop out on the other side, holy and happy little Christian people. Obviously that's not true. I mean, the whole psalm shows that God's own children stray from God. God is a parent who has children who don't believe him and who don't follow him. So, I want you to be encouraged. Well, I want us to be convicted of our um, lack of involving ourselves in passing on the faith to our children. But I also want us to be convinced that as we saw in Psalm 127 a couple of weeks ago, unless the Lord builds this house, those of us who labor, labor in vain. It doesn't mean that if the Lord builds the house, then we don't have to labor. It's that we're invited to labor with him. But still, these little arrows will choose whether they're going to believe in God or not, whether they're going to follow Jesus or not. Our, our responsibility, to the, though, is to present them with the Jesus that's offered in the Bible so that if they reject him, they're rejecting the true Jesus and not some twisted version we've given them. Are you with me? Okay. Last week I said that this week we would look at some lights on the dashboard that ASAP gives us. So um, if you're like me, the only thing I know to do with a, a car is put gas in it, uh, have the oil changed every, one, every now and then by someone else, of course. Uh, why get my hands dirty? Um, and, and stuff like that. Uh, once I, I rented a car to go on a trip and... Um, it was a brand new Jeep. I was driving it, and I noticed pretty quickly that there was a light on on the dashboard. And it was weird. I didn't know what it meant. I'd never seen this light before that I knew of. And so I just looked at it, kind of like, I don't hear anything. I don't smell any smoke. Oh, well, must be okay. So I kept driving. And I did make it to where I was going to go, but um, I wasn't sure what that light was, and it didn't seem to be any problem, so I ignored it. But there's another light that came on on that trip that I knew I couldn't ignore. It was a little yellow gas pump, and it dinged at me, and I knew that I needed to pay attention to that light on the dashboard and go fill the car with gas. I found out later that the other light was that uh, little exclamation point inside of a tire. It's the tire pressure light. Yes, I did not know what that was. We cannot ignore some of the lights that come on the dashboard in our lives. Um, and Asaph is about to offer us several, uh, three, I think. 
And those dashboard lights are meant to make us get under the hood and see what's going on in there. Um, so look at these with me. Uh, I told you last week that Asaph said that what he was about to offer was a parable. And a parable, the word parable literally, literally means to throw something alongside something else. And so a parable is a story that is thrown alongside your story so that it both exposes where you're not living in God's story, but it also explains how you can live in God's story. And that's what Jesus did with his parables, parables, but this is what Asaph does with the parable of God's people. It actually happens to be a true story, the true story of Israel, but he uses it as a story to throw it alongside your story and my story to expose where we're not living in God's story and to explain what it would look like to live in God's story. And as he does this, he uses their story as a symbolic uh, help. He uses them as these warnings, these dashboard lights. So the first one is in verses 9 through 16. And so I'm going to have Karen come read verses 9, 16, and 9 through 16 for us. The Ephraimites armed with the bow turned back on the day of battle. They did not keep God's covenant, but refused to walk according to his law. They forgot his works and the wonders that he had shown them. In the sight of their fathers, he performed wonders in the land of Egypt, in the fields of Zon. He divided the sea and let them pass through it and made the waters stand like a heap. In the daytime, he led them with a cloud and all the night with a fiery light. He split rocks in the wilderness and gave them drink abundantly as from the deep. He made streams come out of the rock and caused waters to flow down like rivers. So here we have the tribe of Ephraim representing the whole of God's people um, turning back in the day of battle and forgetting all the wonders that their warrior God had done for them in rescuing them out of Egypt. All the signs and wonders he had done. It's as if we take a soldier, and uh, my, my uh, veterans in here will appreciate this. If you take a soldier and you fully train him or her, you, truly, you fully equip them, you fully support them with everything they need to go into battle. And when the, when the call to duty comes, when the day to go to the front line comes, they don't show up. What do we call that, Jim? AWOL, right? Absent without leave. Um, this is what God's people have done. They've been fully equipped and trained and supported by God to go into his battle for his great cause, and they don't show up. They're apathetic. Uh, their hearts aren't in it. Um, apathy about the cause led to absence when they were called. But our call, our cause is to join the king on his mission to rescue and renew all people and places and things to go into battle for the hearts of people, to go into battle for the renewal of people, places, and things. Friends, 
the Christian life, according to the scriptures, looks more like D-Day than Labor Day. The Christian life looks more like that first 20 minutes in the film, Saving Private Ryan, where, where they tried to depict, Spielberg tried to depict what it might have looked like that day when our troops invaded the beaches of Normandy. And if you've ever seen that first 20 minutes of that film, it's brutal. It's hard to watch. But that is more like the Christian life than what we're going to do tomorrow when we hang out and barbecue and enjoy our day off. Um, God has called us to a great cause of going into battle for the hearts of people. And the question is, will we turn back on the day of battle? One of those dashboard lights is, if you find yourself tempted when God has called you to live your life in, the, in, in his mission to battle for the hearts of people, if you find yourself tempted to say, I don't want to go there. I'm not that committed of a Christian. I want to show up on Sundays most of the time, and I'll put a check in the offering, but I don't want to get involved in the battle for people places and things. If that's where you, if that's how you experience your heart, it's a light on the dashboard telling you there's something wrong under the hood. And so I want to ask us adults and students, and by the way, um, students, just because I said I'm aiming at your parents doesn't mean that I'm not including you in this conversation. Every generation has to decide for itself what it's going to do with the story that God is telling. So my question is, adults and students, you and I have been given every spiritual blessing in Christ to enter this rescue and renewal mission. Are we apathetic about it? Are we tempted to go AWOL and just not show up? Are we tempted to save our own life rather than lay it down for the sake of others? That's the first dashboard light. The second one is in verses 17 to 31. So Richard is going to read those for us. Yet they sinned still more against him, rebelling against the Most High in the desert. They tested God in their heart by demanding the food they craved. They spoke against God, saying, Can God spread a table in the wilderness? He struck the rock so that the water gushed out and streams overflowed. Can he also give bread or provide meat for his people? Therefore, when the Lord heard, he was full of wrath. A fire was kindled against Jacob. His anger rose against Israel because they did not believe in God and did not trust his saving power. Yet he commanded the skies above and opened the doors of heaven. And he rained down on them manna to eat and gave them the grain of heaven. Man ate the bread of the angels. He sent them food. He sent them food in abundance. He caused the east wind to blow in the heavens, and by his power he led out the south wind. He rained meat on them like dust, winged birds like the sand of the seas. He led them. He let them fall in the midst of their camp, all around their dwellings, and they ate and were filled for he gave them what they craved. But before they had satisfied their craving, while the food was still in their mouths, 
the anger of God rose against them, and he killed the strongest of them and laid low the young men of Israel. Why was God so angry with these people? All they wanted was a good meal. He had given them water. He had provided them manna, bread from heaven. All they wanted was a little protein in their diet. They wanted some meat. And so God, what does God do? He sends the winds and he blows in so many quail, so much bird, that they were drowning in meat. And then, even as they were enjoying and satisfying their cravings, God struck them in anger. What was he so mad about? He's so sensitive. He's like Jimmy on a Saturday when he's tired. So sensitive, so ready to get angry. Here's what it says. Verse 22. It was because they did not believe in God and did not trust his saving power. It was as if they were saying, God, what you have done to save me, to rescue me from slavery, is not enough. I also want the comfort of the life I had while I was in Egypt in slavery. Remember, they complained, oh, if we could only go and sit by the banks of the Nile again and enjoy the food that we enjoyed then. But now we're stuck out here with just this manna, which literally meant, what is it? They didn't even know what they were eating. If only I could have the comfort of life I had while I was in slavery, even though God has saved me from it. The point is that God was not their comfort God was a means to their comfort, or at least what they believed would be their comfort. God was not their comfort. God was a means to their comfort, or at least what they believed would be their comfort. This is the question that I tend to ask, my heart tends to ask, just as they said, can God spread a table in the wilderness? This is the question that my heart tends to ask. God, I know you've saved me, but what have you done for me lately? But God wanted them to trust his saving power, to trust that if he loved them enough to satisfy their greatest need, which was to be rescued from slavery in Egypt, which they cried out for and he answered, if he loved them enough to satisfy that need, then he would love them enough to satisfy every lesser need they would have on their journey through the wilderness to the promised land. Adults and students including the preacher. All we need is Jesus plus whatever else God chooses to give us, even if it's nothing. All we need is Jesus and whatever else God chooses to give us because he thinks we need it. And my question for me is, am I content with Jesus plus whatever else he chooses to give me? Remember Romans 8? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, he gave us Jesus. How will he not also with Jesus graciously give us all things that we need? What we need is Jesus 
and whatever else our Father chooses to give us with Him. But is that enough? Or does my heart crave something else that I think will save me? That's dashboard light number two. Is Jesus and whatever else God chooses to give me enough? Or am I craving something else that I think can save me? Dashboard light number three is verses 32 to 39. Karen's going to read those for us. In spite of all this, they still sinned. Despite his wonders, they did not believe. So he made their days vanish like a breath and their years in terror. When he killed them, they sought him. They repented and sought God earnestly. They remembered that God was their rock the Most High God, their Redeemer. But they flattered him with their mouths. They lied to him with their tongues. Their heart was not steadfast toward him. They were not faithful to his covenant. Yet he, being compassionate, atoned for their iniquity and did not destroy them. He restrained his anger often and did not stir up all his wrath. He remembered that they were but flesh, a wind that passes and comes not again. Thank you. Verses 34 through 37. When he killed them, they sought him. They repented and sought God earnestly. So when he brought suffering and pain into their lives, they turned and sought God earnestly. They remembered that God was their rock, the most high God, their redeemer. But here's the thing, there was something artificial about that repentance, about that turning to God, about that religious activity. They flattered him with their mouths, they lied to him with their tongues. Their heart was not steadfast toward him. They were not faithful to his covenant. As Jesus said when he quoted Isaiah, their hearts worshipped him, their, I mean their lips worshipped him, but their hearts were far from him. God was using suffering to wean his people off of their comforts so that they would remember that he was their only rock that would support them and that he was their only redeemer that would save them. And it seemed that that's what the suffering that he allowed in their lives was doing. And yet, it appears that though they remembered he was their rock and redeemer in their heads, They didn't embrace him as rock and redeemer in their hearts. C.S. Lewis said, God whispers to us in our pleasures. He speaks to us in our consciences, but he shouts to us in our pains. Pain is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. And this is what God was doing with his people, trying to call them back away from their comforts that were not him. And like a child who says, I'm sorry, You know how that goes? Just to get you off their case? Where they kind of, quote unquote, repent to get you to leave them alone and to get the punishment to stop, the discipline to stop, the pain to stop. I say a child does that. I do that to my wife too. I'm sorry, so will she leave me alone now? That's how God's people, that's how we treat him when he brings things into our lives that hurt and we repent on a surface level. 
We repent merely to get God off our case, to get him to remove the suffering that was keeping them from their comforts. Adults and students and the preacher, I ask, are we just going through the religious motions so that maybe God won't make our life miserable? Are we saying and doing the right things just to get God off our back? Or are we willing to be faithful to him no matter what suffering he allows in our lives? That's the third light on the dashboard. So you've got these three lights on the dashboard to ask, are you tempted to go AWOL? Are you apathetic about the great cause that God has called you into? Are you... um, controlled by your appetite for something else, some comfort that you think will save you more than the saving that God has already done and doing in your life? Is, is Jesus and whatever God gives you enough? That's light on the dashboard number two. Light on the dashboard number three. Are we doing the religious stuff just to kind of keep God at bay and so that we can keep him from sending things, suffering that gets in the way of what we really want, and that is a comfortable life. Wow. Thanks a lot, Asaph. I blame him. Don't blame me. Because he's preaching to me too. So if that's happening in my heart, then what's going, if that's happening in my life, what's going on in my heart under the hood? Verses 40 to 64, and I'm going to read these quickly. Um, talk about what's actually going on under the hood in God's people and in me. The story is retold again. You'll notice that he goes back to the rescue from Egypt and, and all the way through the wilderness to the promised land. He retells the story in order to summarize and point out that the ultimate problem is that we have amnesia. We have willfully forgotten what God has done to save his people from their slavery and to himself. So, verses 40 to 64. How often they rebelled against him in the wilderness and grieved him in the desert. Notice grieved. Notice this is a relational thing between us and God. They tested God again and again and provoked the Holy One of Israel. They did not remember his power or the day when he redeemed them from the, from the foe. There it is. It's gospel amnesia. They did not remember his power or the day when he redeemed them from the foe. When he performed his signs in Egypt and his marvels on the fields of Zoan. And then in verse 44, he starts to talk about what he did to rescue them, where he Uh, sent the ten plagues. And each of those plagues, if you didn't know this before, this is fascinating, each of those plagues was aimed at a god of of Egypt, the little g gods of Egypt. God was showing Egypt the narratives that they're telling about what makes life work and all the little gods that they attach to those stories are not the true story because he is the true and living God who has the true story to tell. And so... That's what these plagues are. He turned their rivers to blood so that they could not drink of their streams. He sent among them swarms of flies which devoured them and frogs which destroyed them. 
He gave their crops to the destroying locust and the fruit of their labor to the locust. He destroyed their vines with hail and their sycamores with frost. He gave over the cattle to the hail and their flocks to thunderbolts. He let loose on them his burning anger, wrath, indignation, and distress, a company of destroying angels. He made a path for his anger. He did not spare them from death, but he gave their lives over to the plague. So yes, God gets angry. Yes, God gets wrathful. But it's wrath at false narratives, stories that are not the true story that swallow up people and ruin their lives. And then finally, he struck down every firstborn in Egypt, the firstfruits of their strength in the tents of Ham. Then he led out his people like a sheep. He guided them in the wilderness like a flock. He led them in safety so that they were not afraid. But the sea overwhelmed their enemies. And he brought them to his holy land, to the mountain which his right hand had won. He drove out the nations before them, in Canaan, in the promised land. And he apportioned for them a a possession and settled the tribes of Israel in their tents. Yet, they tested and rebelled against the Most High God and did not keep his testimonies. But they turned away and acted treacherously like their fathers. They twisted like a deceitful bow. For they provoked him to anger with their high places. High places were where they would have... um, Altars to idols. They moved him to jealousy with their idols. You hear that relational language? God was jealous. He wants a relationship with his people. When God heard, he was full of wrath, and he utterly rejected Israel. He forsook his dwelling at Shiloh, the tent where he dwelt among mankind. Shiloh was where uh, the Ark of the Covenant rested. And he delivered his power, the Ark of the Covenant, to captivity, the Philistines, and his glory to the hand of the foe. He gave his people over to the sword and vented his wrath on his heritage. Fire devoured their young men, and their young women had no marriage song. Their priests fell by the sword, and their widows made no lamentation. Our problem is amnesia. We have willfully forgotten the God who has saved us and all that he has done to rescue us from our slavery. We have willfully forgotten that he loves us and his love is greater than all the lesser loves that Egypt or America or anything offers us. What's at the heart of the problem is unbelief. What's at the heart of the problem is that we are believing other stories instead of the one God has told in Jesus. Because in Jesus, in the gospel, God struck down his firstborn. And he did it for our rescue. He did it to lead us out of our slavery. He did it for our renewal, uh, to renew us in this wilderness journey uh, into fearless followers who love God and love others. He did it for our ultimate rest, that promised land that is waiting for us, that he's promised. And yet, 
we struggle and we test him. We rebel against him. But I want you to see, friends, whether you're an adult or a student, that even though we have forgotten the good news of the gospel of what God has done to rescue us through Jesus and renew us through Jesus and give us rest in Jesus, even though we've forgotten the gospel, as one of the Puritans said, there is more mercy in Christ than there is sin in us. Look back at verses 38 and 39. This theme comes through a lot, but this, these verses clearly say it in Psalm 78. You notice how patient God seems to be? Yeah, he'll discipline, but then he comes back. I mean, if it were you or me, we would have been done with these people long before Verse 38, yet he being compassionate atoned for their iniquity and did not destroy them. He restrained his anger often. We just don't know how often he restrains his anger with us and did not stir up all his wrath. He remembered that they were flesh. There is more mercy in this God whom we reject, then there is sin in us. He's always reaching out his hand, inviting us to come, even after we have rebelled against him, even after we've turned back from the battle he's called us to, even after we have had an appetite for other things that we think will bring us comfort besides Jesus, even after we have fake worshipped him, he still has mercy and calls us back. And so these final verses that Richard's going to read for us show us again how God had mercy on these straying children of his. Richard, if you'd read this, and we'll finish. Then the Lord awoke as from sleep, like a strong man shouting because of wine. And he put his adversaries to rout. He put them to everlasting shame. He rejected the tent of Joseph. He did not choose the tribe of Ephraim, but he chose the tribe of Judah. Mount Zion, which he loves. He built his sanctuary like the high heavens, like the earth, which he has founded forever. He chose David, his servant, and took him from the sheepfolds, from following the nursing ewes that he brought him to shepherd Jacob, his people, Israel, his inheritance. With upright heart, he shepherded them and guided them with his skillful hand. And so we see that though, yes, God is angry against the sin of his people, he's not done with them yet. And so in these verses, it says that he goes and routes his adversaries, the enemies of God's people. And then, rather than throwing the whole lot of them in the trash heap, he reaches down and he chooses the tribe of Judah. And out of the tribe of Judah, he chooses a man named David who will be a good shepherd, who will be the good shepherd, the good king that his people who tend to stray and rule themselves need. And that David points to the true David, to the Lord Jesus Though the story stops here with Asaph, he didn't know the rest of the story to tell. We do. That David points to the true good shepherd, 
the true good king. God's people needed a good shepherd because we're prone to wander. And so he sent us Jesus, who would, in our place, enter into the battle and not go absent without leave. Who would, in our place, resist craving comfort, but instead become bread for us. Who, in our place, would would not just be religious so that he could escape the judgment of God and the, and the wrath of God and the suffering of God, but entered into the suffering that we deserved, the judgment that we deserved, so that we would not just be religious people, but that we would be God's people. This Jesus did what God wants every generation to do. He loved God with all his heart and his mind in his strength. This is the good shepherd who came for you and for me because God knew that this story would continue. His people would continue to stray and go away from him. Friends, there is more mercy in Christ than there is sin in you. Parents, in all your failures, and all my failures as a parent, There is more mercy in Christ than there is failure in you. Students, if you're ones who are prone to wander and you feel it and you're you're not sure you want to love this God that your parents love, there's more mercy in Christ than there is wandering in you. Come to him. Enter into the true story for which you were made. Young and old, listen. There is still time to grow in the story of God. Let's do it together. Father, uh, thank you for Psalm 78. Wow. So long, but so rich. Um, Thank you for bringing us to the true David, to the true king, to the true shepherd. Um, and this table represents the kind of shepherd that he is, that he would become a lamb and go to the slaughter for us, Um, that he would give himself in his body and his blood to win us back to the Father so that we may enter his story. Oh, God. Would you help us as a people here at Mountain Fellowship to be people who love that story, who want to learn it and desire to live in it? We ask in Christ's name, amen.